For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Wednesday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today? If you're in New York, uh, chances are you are, if, well, you're here, if you're not here, you're at a matinee. Or if you're watching this later, uh, you may have been to a matinee. It's matinee day in New York. But somewhere in the world right now, again, if you're not watching this show, you're watching a vintage TV show. I am a proud baby boomer. And I talked about this uh, at other times on the show. I grew up at a time where there were three networks, ABC, CBS, NBC. And in some markets, it was PBS. But not where I grew up. I grew up in South Carolina in a very small town, and we had those three networks. And those three networks were always vying for the largest demographic they could get. And therefore, I grew up watching those entertainers and those stars from my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, sharing screen time with those from my generation. So I grew up with a healthy celebration of who those were who went before me. But there's someone else that I'd like to celebrate today, and that is our very special guest, and that's Herbie J. Pilato, who I am such a fan of. I have to tell you, when I go through, I'm just going to give you a sampling of just some of the books that this man has written. I mean, Mary, the Mary Tyler Moore story, uh, his latest book, Retroactive Television, uh, The Essential Elizabeth Montgomery, uh, Glamour, Gidgets, and the Girl Next Door, Dashing, Daring, and Debonair. He, I mean, he covers everything. Uh, star, again, Twitch Upon a Star, and once again, Bewitch Forever. Mm-hmm. And I've got my very own Bewitch book right here. I am such a fan. And just this past Sunday night, Reels did a documentary uh, on Elizabeth Montgomery, which was quite moving. And of course, you were at the very center of this. Thank you for taking the time to be here today. I don't know where you find the time. I don't either, Richard. <laughs> you know, I guess I'm just driven in a, in a good way. I've always felt that if an idea comes to you, it whispers in your ear, you got to listen to it and, and follow through with it. And if you don't, the people who might benefit from it don't benefit from it. And you don't please the universe and you don't please yourself. So I always try to listen to that whisper. No, you, I also, just a few months ago, I read an incredible blog that you wrote about, uh, it's based on your latest book. You also wrote a book about uh, going back home and uh, you were home for, you know, the holidays and, uh, you know, during COVID and what that experience was like for you. Um, Why did you decide to write that type of a book, which is a little different from everything else that you've written? Yes, that was the 12 best secrets of Christmas. Um, it was time for me to do something more personal. You know, I would covered everybody that I possibly could that I ever loved from the 50s, 60s and 70s. And, you know, I interviewed everybody that I wanted to interview and, and, and talked with everybody that I wanted to talk with. But I wanted to do something different and yet still stay connected to that era of the classic TV generation. So there's even though that's my personal story, The 12 Best Secrets of Christmas, 
I talk about Rudolph and Christmas specials um, that were so important to the era. And actually, uh, two books down the road, I'm doing Christmas TV Memories, which is going to cover all Christmas specials, animated TV movies and variety specials and things like that. But the 12 Best Secrets of Christmas is about my time growing up in Rochester, New York, uh, a beautiful Italian family, big Italian family. And each chapter in the book is a secret. Each chapter is a message about what Christmas really means. Well, you know, I think that both you and I come from this sense of family. And, you know, it's very interesting. Before COVID hit, I was doing a live show, Richard Skipper Celebrate, which was a talk variety show. And at Christmas a few years ago, I was lucky enough, and I still pinch myself, at when I reached out and asked if she would do the show, Catherine Crosby mm. uh, said yes to me. Wow. And to sit and sing White Christmas with Catherine Crosby. And of course, a flood of memories were going through my head. I saw every Christmas special that I sat with my grandparents and my parents growing up. Um, I asked for a photograph of you at five years old, and I'm going to tell you why in a moment. Uh, okay. But here it is. And I have a similar photo <laughs> of me with my little red racer. No. Know, uh, uh, I'm sorry? I said, no, you don't. <laughs> uh, I do. I do. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I actually wrote to my sister. I'm going to send it to you when I get it. I said, please send me this picture because I wanted to send it to you. Uh, <laughs> you'll die when you see it. And uh, because I asked for the five-year-old self, because to me, and I, again, I've said this on previous shows, uh, the five-year-old self to me is the purest self. Mm. It's before life begins to tell you who you should be, who you shouldn't be, yeah. uh, peer pressure, teachers, other students. Tell us a little bit about who this five-year-old boy is. I was a happy child. I was, you know, we didn't have much, Richard. Um, it was a tough time. And you know, and I was a cute little kid, and because of that, I would be bullied. Um, it didn't help that I used to love and sing and dance, and I was that, you know, Mickey Rooney from "Hey, let's put on a show" type gut type kid. So it was it was tough, but uh, there was so much love. Um, and you know, as we'd watch the Brady Bunch or or certainly Ozzie and Harriet, which is just a little bit before my time, and I'm watching it now. It wasn't really Ozzy and Harriet, but somehow it was full of love and acceptance, you know, and it was just a beautiful, beautiful, special time in my life. So I want to talk, uh, where did you grow up, first of all? Rochester, New York, um, right about up the block from the International Office of Eastman Kodak and right across oh, the street. Very well. <laughs> right across the street from what used to be the original home office of Xerox. So there you go, <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> and brothers and sisters? I had an older sister, Pamela, still do. She's been my number one cheerleader from day one. She's the one who said, Dad, I want a little brother. So she got one. <laughs> be careful what you wish for. <laughs> well, yeah, it's at times. Um, but both my mother and father had 10 brothers and sisters about that each. So every night was a party. Every morning, I just blogged about breakfast on Erie Street. There'd be like 10 people there, you know, because one of my aunts and uncles would either drive me and my sister and my cousin, Abby, who lived next door uh, to school when my father couldn't. But everybody would just come over to the house for breakfast anyway, or coffee. It was just our house was the hub. 
Well, I love this. My dad was one of 10 and my mom was the oldest of 16. Oh my so God. yes, <laughs> in oh, South Carolina. God. So I, I know exactly what you're talking oh, about. You know exactly what but, uh, And let's talk about the TV set because if you, uh, did you have a, a, you know, a TV in your household? And if so, was it a piece of furniture? Yes. <laughs> the first one was those console. It was just a black and white. And then we got a Motorola 19 inch cons console, uh, wood Oak, but it would always break. And we'd have to lug it. My father never really wanted to call the, the man, man. So we had a friend of a friend who would fix TV. So we'd, you know, we'd lug the, the TV into his car and we'd drink it, bring it like 10 miles up the up Lake Avenue in Rochester. And we'd go to cherry road. I think it was, Anyway, so yeah, and then one day it broke, and I was really disheartened, and my father just said, oh, go look in the living room, and there was this brand new, like Jetsons-type, black and white, RCA color track TV. I was in heaven, you know? I could not believe, and it just stood out, because our house was, you know, old-fashioned and whatnot. It wasn't stylish, mm -hmm. and there was this glowing piece of metal thing uh in in the middle of the living room and they just my parents loved me and they were i was very spoiled we had nothing but i was spoiled oh trust me you had a lot you had a <laughs> lot um do you remember when you got your first color television set that was it that oh, was oh, no, the, Motor, the motorola was the first color the motorola was the first color there was a for some reason there was a nail i don't know where this how it got there but there was a nail on the bottom of one of the feet and it would always scratch the floor. So I, that always bugged me. And we finally pu pulled it out. But yeah, we used to watch Lawrence Welk, Saturday Nights, Bar Bar Petticoat Junction. The whole family would come over for popcorn. Uh, what else was on Saturday Night? Hollywood Palace. And of course, later on, Mary Tyler Moore and, and Bob Newhart. And well, Carol Saturday Brown. Nights, were, that was it. I mean, no, no one went out on Saturday nights and unless you went out later, that, that, that came much later. But I remember the three knobs, remember, uh, with the color, the brightness and the tint Yeah, yeah. and trying to adjust <laughs> the right color. I mean, people I and mean, kids can have no imagination no, of what no. we went through to get the right color. No. I remember one time being at my Aunt Christine's house, may she rest in peace, and we were watching The Wizard of Oz, and she comes into the room, and she said, isn't this movie in color? And she was trying to get the color on during the black and white portion of the film, mm. and as a result, when Dorothy landed in Oz, all the colors were wacko, so <laughs> we were all very upset with her. <laughs> you know, that's funny you bring up The Wizard of Oz, because I was over my uh, cousin's house one time when that was on, and I wanted to watch it so bad. It's such a, obviously a beautiful film, but my Uncle Val, he never wanted me to watch Dark Shadows, because he thought it was too creepy for a kid, and he never wanted me to really watch anything that I wanted, especially when I was eight or seven. So he threw me in the cellar and this old TV, and there was like one of those color screens, and I put it on the screen. It was a black and white TV, and I put it on the screen to have like three different colors, you know, and that's how I watched The Wizard of Oz until his program was over. And they said, okay, RBJ, you can come back and watch Wizard of Oz with, uh, with the rest of the family. That's amazing. So you mentioned earlier that you were that kid, and I was too, who was always putting on the shows. I was putting on shows in school, and I used to put on uh, shows on the front steps of my high school. Mm. But 
at what point did you decide that you were going to create the career that you've created for yourself? Or did you have any idea of the career that you were going to create for yourself? And I'm going to ask you what may sound like a woo-woo question, uh, but do you believe in manifestation? Because it seems to me like you've created your own personal niche in this business. Um, I'm going to say yes to that briefly as, as what was the first question was first part of the question. You know, uh, when you decided what you were going to do oh, with your life. Yeah. Well, I always wanted to, um, I always enjoyed performing, you know, I didn't think really that far ahead that I was going to, you know, get into the industry, but it, later on, I wanted to be an actor. But as a kid, if we'd go out to dinner, I would, you know, stand up in the restaurant and dance for people. <laughs> You know, that was, I would just do that. I was drawn to that. And my father, who was very talented and very good looking, he really could have been a movie star, blonde hair, blue eyes, he's a beautiful man. Um, he always said, this kid's got talent. He's got talent. And he would send me to dance class early on. And I didn't feel comfortable in that, especially because it was all girls. And they were all in tutus. And I just, that kind of freaked me out. But Whatever talent I had and artistically, it came from my dad and the warm heartedness and the soul and the faith uh, and the drive to manifest things, I guess, did come from my mom. So, yes, I always had a vision, whether it was conscious or not, but it was there. And I think in high school or maybe late grammar school um, during the Brady Bunch, the peak of the Brady Bunch, I wanted to be one of them or I wanted to be the Partridge family, but I was always in love with Samantha. You know, I was always like so many of us. I just loved her because she loved Darren for who he was and not for what he could do for her. So when you were in the high school, yeah, were you thinking about what your next steps were going to be after high school? Um, growing up in Rochester, did you have a lot of opportunities for what you wanted to do there? I and did, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I didn't have a lot of confidence. You know, I mean, I was a good looking kid, um, but because of the bullying, you know, it really kind of affected me. So it was also one of the things that drew me to escapist, escapist television like Bewitched and Genie and whatever. So it, it, it made me focus on going to a different place and that TV land and that TV land ultimately brought me to Los Angeles in the long run. In high school, it was it was also tough. I didn't. I was very athletic, but I didn't play sports. I was very um, strong, but I didn't have the confidence to play sports. I didn't even act in in the theater productions in high school. My confidence came really with John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever, and I finally found something I could cling to. And I'd go dance and I'd meet girls and it was great. It was it was because of Saturday Night Fever. So that's one thing started to say, you know what? I think I want to go to Los Angeles, you know? And I wanted to do that from when I was six, about 16, 17, junior in high school. Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, and, and I know exactly the time frame that we're talking about because mm -hmm. for me, um, it was always going to go, I wanted to go to New York because the show business that I wanted to be in was the world of the variety show, which really didn't exist by the time I got to New York. Uh, I had to create my own variety shows in the world of cabaret. But you did make the decision to go to California. And was that an easy transition for you? Mm -hmm. um, uh, 
I want to go back for a moment because um, I, coming to New York, not only was I going towards something, but I was also running away from a lot that I was dealing with in South Carolina as well. Do you feel that that was also the same thing for you? I wasn't running away from, I mean, you know, as I look back, there was so much family and uh, all the time. And there was not a lot of privacy. So I guess that kind of did ignite me to say, gee, I want to get out on my own. I want to get out of Rochester. I want to go, um, you know, to the, the big city. But in retrospect, you know, I didn't realize how blessed I truly was. And there was a lot of love there. And I certainly have found a lot of love, you know, wherever I go, because I'm that type of person. I seek mm-hmm. that out, you know. Um, but it was... It was tough. And I would go back and forth to Los Angeles and Rochester over the years and not just in the in the 70s, but through the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s and the 2010s, because ultimately I kept on going back to take care of my parents um, as they got older. Um, I was their primary caregiver uh, for the for about 13 years. And that's really when I started uh, straying away from writing, or excuse me, from acting and performing and focusing more on writing and producing because I could do that from Rochester. Whereas if you want to act, you really need to be, you know, if you want to make it, you really need to be in LA or New York. So I came to New York in 1979. What was the year that you landed in Los Angeles? First time visit, 77. Uh, first time, uh, a lengthy time was when I was a student of uh, television and film at UCLA from 82 to 83. And then I made the formal move back to LA in the fall of 83. Now, you said it wasn't an easy transition. Um, and I know that in this time frame, and you can fill us in, you became a page at NBC working on the Johnny Carson show. Yes. Yes, that was like the best job job ever. Um, I went to that fall when I made the formal move to uh, L.A. in 83. I went to a taping of Family Ties with, you know, what was it? Michael J. Fox. Sweet show. And I saw the pages there. And I'm like, darn, that's something I want to do. So I stopped the page and I said, I'd like to do what you're doing. And he's like, no, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) I said, yes, I do. He goes, it doesn't pay anything. I says, I don't care. And I had heard that paging was a good way to get into the industry. And not CBS pages and not ABC pages, but the NBC page program in particular had the best internship. And I wanted it. And everybody said I'd never be able to do it. Well, six months after I met that young page who helped me to get um, an interview with Eva Hawkins, who ran guest relations, I got the job and it was the best job ever and met so many wonderful. It was like an internship, a college frat house is what it was, mm-hmm. but with stars. <laughs> you know, it, yes. was, it was terrific. Anybody who was anybody in, in the 80s, from Farrah Fawcett to John Travolta, uh, Cindy Lauper, Paul McCartney, they I saw them all go through the hallway on the Johnny Carson show, which I pretty much worked every other night, uh, which was amazing. So being this kid growing up in Rochester, getting to Los Angeles, working as a page at NBC, do you recall the first major star that you met that you grew up idolizing and what that experience was like for you? 
Um, well, the first major star I met at NBC was we used to have part of our, we had so many different jobs as a page. We worked publicity, we gave tours, and we went on limo runs where we worked in the ticket office. But the limo runs were, is where we would go with the limo driver to pick up a star and take him to the airport or to the studio. And the first time I did that was, was uh, James B. Sicking from Hill Street Blues, and I was so nervous. You know, and he was really not an A-list star, but a sweet, sweet guy and a very talented guy. And he was on TV in a series. And he also happened to do uh, a cameo in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, or Star Trek III, one of those. And I'm a huge Trek fan. So I was sitting next to this actor, and he's like, are you nervous? Are you? I go, yeah. And he put me at ease. So that stays out in my mind as the first big celebrity that I ever met that have to be... Um, B. Arthur and Betty White and Rue McClanahan when I happened to be the page that was assigned to greet each of them as they're coming into the big publicity party uh, that NBC was having that year of fall of 85 for all, all of its new shows. And what I noticed about them later when I started working the show um, as a page and seating the Golden Girls was how they each looked like their cars. Uh, B. Arthur drove this big black uh, two-door BMW. Rue McClanahan drove a, a beige Mercedes. Uh, Betty White drew, uh, drove this elegant uh, green, mint green Seville Cadillac. And uh, Sal Gatti had a Chevette. I mean, it just all fit. It just all fit. Now, during this whole period, were you... Uh, keeping journals? Were you writing? How did the writing start for you? It The writing of the NBC book happened really because I was just always telling stories like I'm telling now about, mm -hmm. you know, until finally someone said, Herb, you need to write a book about this. And that's when NBC and me, my life as a page in a book came about. But the first book uh, was the Bewitched book. And that happened in 1992 a few years after I met Elizabeth. And I wrote that book because I had originally written a reunion movie for Bewitched. They had done a movie called I Dream of Jeannie 15 years later. Mm -hmm. And that upset me a little bit. I'm like, wait a minute, if there's going to be any uh, movie about a hot blonde, you know, magical woman who's married to a dark haired guy, it should be Bewitched. So I had ended up watching Bewitched again. Strangely enough, I had broken my toe after I finished NBC, because you're contracted for like 18 months. And I'm watching Bewitched again in the reruns, and I'm seeing something different about it through adult eyes, that it was about true love and prejudice and strong work ethic. So I wrote this reunion just as I was watching the old episodes of the show and as the new I.G. Genie um, series or film happened. And I sent my reunion to Elizabeth. She did not want to do it. And around a year later, Bill Asher, who was then married to Elizabeth, um, who was married to Elizabeth during the original run of the show, he um, was going to do a new Bewitched series. And Elizabeth was actually going to pop on as Samantha and introduce this new witch and pop off. So I sent him the script that I had written for the reunion. He loved it. And he said he, wants, he wanted to hire me as a, a writer on the new Bewitched show. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. They lost financing. It was going to be done in the UK, I believe, or I believe. And then I said, well, how about we do a book about the original show? Do you think Elizabeth would do that? And she agreed to that. And that was a whole other 
experience in meeting Elizabeth. I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I oh, mean, you'd rather not talk about it. No, no, no. I would absolutely love oh, it. I no, mean, because you have written more about Elizabeth than any other subject. Am I correct? Correct. <laughs> and uh, no, I mean, uh, and uh, there were several things watching this the other night. Um, it it hit me very hard. I mean, it was a very emotional show for you to watch for a few reasons, which I'll share with you. Uh, I can share before you speak or after you uh, share your story. Um, why don't you go first? This is about you. Well, no, let, let me, let's hear what you have to say. I'd be interested. Well, first of all, um, and I make it emotional, even to, uh, the relationship with her father. Yeah. Uh, I had a very similar relationship with my father. Mm. And uh, that was very difficult to to see that she had spent her entire life trying to win over that and uh, that, you know, his uh, approval. And that was very difficult. Um, I just turned 62, which, of course, is the age that she was when she mm. passed on. And when you hear of something like this, you begin to look at your own mortality and you also look at your accomplishments or what you feel you have or have not accomplished. And I look at her body of worth, as I like to refer to it. Mm. Um, and uh, she did so much uh, beyond Bewitched uh, that people are not even aware of, I don't think, in the scheme of things. And uh, I was just incredibly moved by uh, the way that this was presented the other night. I hope you're happy with the way it was presented. Uh, I'm very happy. I mean, the, the production company that um, I partnered with, AMS Pictures, and also my business partner, Joel Eisenberg, they were just terrific to work with. And we tried to make a dignified um, documentary. We didn't want to shy away from controversy because there was a lot of elements that you know that she had issues we all have issues and i did not want to present this perfect picture because she wasn't a perfect person because none of us are are perfect people and i wanted to tell the truth but i wanted to do so in a dignified manner and reels uh steve cheskin who's the head of reels there he was so supportive of the project from the beginning so it was a very very uh special documentary that it was a group effort it wasn't just me, trust me. It was everyone working together. Sarah Gashaw, who is a co-writer on it, um, she is just a genius. And she pulled it all together. Um, it was just, it was a terrific experience all the way around. No, I mean, kudos to everyone because I was, I, I thought it was, I, I thought it was brilliant. And uh, there's so many, uh, you know, what is it? I mean, I know from being a fan of hers, you uh, have been able to delve uh, much deeper uh, than uh, the world of fandom. Um, what is it about Elizabeth Montgomery uh, that you are drawn so deeply to? She always impressed me as Samantha, number one, the character. You know, as I said earlier, that Samantha loved Darren for who he was, you know, Whatever he could buy her or give her or work to and strive to give her, she could zap up something better or twitch up something better. Mm -hmm. She didn't love him for his money or position. She loved him for him. So that always mm -hmm. affected me. As a kid, of course, you loved the magic and all of that. But later on, when I was 
really starting to study Elizabeth and who she was as a person, how she did so much charity work. She was one of the first uh, people or celebrities to support those who are suffering from AIDS. She was one of the first to uh, reach out to uh, the disabled community. She recorded, you know, books for the blind. She did all this amazing work with her public persona for charity. And she did it in a non-arrogant way. She was raised by Robert Montgomery and Elizabeth Allen. They, you know, lived in New York, Manhattan, Beverly Hills, all around the world. They had these, you know, ama this amazing life. But she was so down to earth. Mm -hmm. And when I met her, that just confirmed what I had read about her. Um, she when you first met her, uh, Herbie, excuse me for interrupting, was she very open from the very beginning or was there, uh, did she have her guard up? I mean, I'm sure that, I mean, in this business, uh, there are a lot of, as you know, uh -huh. uh, there are a lot of takers in this business. Yes. Uh, I've been taken advantage by a few myself. Um, there are a lot of people out there who are out to get whatever they can get. Yeah. Um, was she open to you from the very beginning? It was all because of Bill Asher. When I, when I finally met her six months, well, what happened was <clears throat> Bill Asher gave me her phone number. Okay. <laughs> I had Elizabeth Montgomery's phone number. So I called her and she didn't respond for about six months. And I'm like, what the heck? So one day I went to do my laundry and she, uh, I went back up to my, um, my, my uh, studio apartment in Santa Monica and there was a flash on the answering machine. We had answering machines in those days. It was 1988, 89. Mm -hmm. And there was a message from Lizzie Montgomery saying, hi, this is Lizzie. Uh, this is crazy. And she hung up. So I called her back. I'm, you know, first I freaked out. She called me and left a message <laughs> on the machine. So I called her back and I said, hi, this is Herbie. I'm so sorry. I missed your call. I was doing my laundry. And, and she goes, as you should. <laughs> I love it. And so right there and then we connected. So finally we met and we scheduled a time to meet and she had me over and she sat me down and she said, why are you doing this? You know, why are you doing this book? I says, well, I believe in bewitched. I believe in true love. I believe in, in family priorities. I believe in the message of prejudice that all people are equal, that we should accept everybody no matter who or what they are or do, as long as they're kind and love, loving. And she's like, okay, okay. Because Bill Asher said, I really needed to speak with you. And he never tells me that I need to speak with anybody. <laughs> so it's because of Bill Asher that I got to Elizabeth Montgomery. And it's because of Elizabeth Montgomery that every good thing that happened in my career, because every good thing that happened happened because of that bewitched book. I wanted to do And she's still twitching her nose in your behalf. I, you know what? She, I said to her on the second meeting, I stopped her during a, a, a part of the conversation. I said, you know, you know how I really am, don't you? And now she's like, no, who? I go, I'm your guardian angel. And she stopped and she said, you know, the only other person that ever said that to me was my grandma. And if that's true, that you really are my guardian angel, then you've got some pretty big uh, shoes to fill. And it was an amazing moment. It was, and now I'm going to start crying. It was why I was so 
protective of her uh, in doing the documentary. I wanted to make sure, again, I did not run, want to run away from controversy. I did not want to have this be a, a puff piece because it's not. No, it's not. Well, another coincidence, um, January 31st of this year, mm-hmm. I had uh, a colonoscopy. And, uh, and of course, she passed away from colon cancer. And uh, a message to everyone. And you know, I had a friend recently, and he said he was going through some health issues, but he didn't want to talk about it. And, uh, and I said, too many people take their health issues to their grave rather than telling their friends, telling people what they're going through. And she was dealing with health issues on the set of her last film and wasn't really addressing the health issues that she was feeling. And it was too late by the time she dealt with it. Well, you know, both Bill Asher and Robert Foxworth at one point said that, and Robert Foxworth was her fourth husband, um, that she didn't want to get old. Mm. You know, and whether it was a subconscious thing, whether she was just done with life, whether she made her mark in the world and she knew in her heart of hearts that it was time to move on, that's what happened. Also, at that time, we weren't as conscious of of the colonoscopies and all of that and, and whatnot. But she never really did take all that great uh, good care of her health. You know, she... She had, she fluctuated with, you know, eating and, and she was up and down with that. She never really worked out or anything like that, you know, and it was, there were some challenges that she had, but I really think that she looked around and she just wanted to go home. You know, I think she even said that to, to her husband that in those, those final hours, she was, I'm just, I'm just ready to go home. She was done. She moved yeah. on. Yes. Um, how do you feel that, you know, writing these books about Elizabeth Montgomery, and then I want to talk about some of your other subjects that you've written about, uh, ha- how has she shaped your life? Oh, gosh. I mean, incredibly. I mean, I've lost relationships because it's either me or Samantha. You know, I've, I, would, <laughs> I would hear that. And I've never been a stronghold in relationships anyway. But, um, no, the whole thing about my my forming the charity, the Classic TV Preservation Society, the essence of of, of the positive message of classic TV shows that, that people became doctors because of Marcus Welby or attorneys because of Perry Mason or families learned to communicate because of the Brady Bunch and Father Knows Best and the Waltons, which is one of my all-time favorites. So I, oh, I watched I, an episode before I, I, you know, I took time off this afternoon as, you know, before coming on and I watched an old episode of the Waltons and, uh, you know, and the episodes still get me. I mean, these messages that were there, you know, and uh, and I interviewed um, a sitcom writer not too long ago, and he, he said to me that he actually compartmentalizes his day into thirty-minute segments, just like a sitcom. <laughs> and if you know, and he deals with what he has to deal with in that thirty minutes. And if everything goes to pot, you know, it's over in thirty minutes, and he moves on to something else. Can you imagine that? <laughs> That's hilarious. I love it. I absolutely love that. Um, yeah, so me forming the charity, me looking at life about what matters in life, you know, it's all really because of, 
of Elizabeth and classic TV shows. She's was very inspiring. And okay, yeah, I was in love with her. I mean, if I, I would have absolutely loved to have dated the woman, but I did not want to go in any way down that road in any way. It's just I didn't want to ruin anything. Not that I'd have a chance. <laughs> I'm just, but I was totally, obviously. I mean, come on, it's no secret. So, well, with I, yeah, and and with Mary's Hallamore, also, you, I mean, a great book that you've written uh, about her. Um, and uh, we also lost her, you know. Yeah. Uh, and Mary and Elizabeth were very similar, very similar. They both had demanding fathers. They both had fathers who they could not ultimately please. They both felt stereotyped by their roles on Bewitched and Dick Van Dyke's show and the Mary Tyler Moore show. They both tried to do very different movies and characters beyond Samantha, Laura Petrie, and Mary Richards. And there was, I think at some point, Mary Tyler Moore was live, lived next to the Ashes, so they knew each other. Um, and I think Elizabeth felt a little bad that she didn't win an Emmy. You know, Mary was winning all those Emmys in the 60s from the Dick Van Dyke show and the early 70s on the Mary Tyler Moore show. And Elizabeth really did deserve. Oh, Emmy, absolutely. You know, so they were very similar. And I don't think there was a whole heck of a lot of self-love in, in either of them. Certainly with Mary, she was having all this plastic surgery, that that adorable chipmunk cheeks that she would have, you know, she destroyed them with that surgery to make sure that she had the uh, the severe um, high cheekbones. And she had a couple different teeth transplants and whatnot. She just would not stop. It was like Michael Jackson, you know, going on and on and on. And I'm like, why? You were adorable. You know, you were just perfect the way you, what was it in you that felt that you didn't look great? With her in particular, it was, there was also gone back to sex. She was sexually abused as a kid by a neighbor when she was like six years old. That never happened with Elizabeth, but she was verbally abused by her dad. Both of them were verbally abused by their fathers. You know, it's amazing. I mean, when, I mean, when you talk about the plastic surgery uh, issue, I mean, that's a whole other uh, subject right there. And why so many people, I, I so admire uh, it, men and women both uh, who are able to age gracefully uh, and not, uh, and I understand the pressures of this crazy business uh, that chooses us to go into it, uh, that you constantly have to look younger and younger and younger uh, instead of uh, just, um, I was watching um, uh, a, a special last night on uh, Joan Crawford on TCM and Betsy Palmer was talking about that very issue uh, and how difficult it was uh, when Joan, and you know the story, I'm sure, that when Joan Crawford saw an unflattering photograph of her in the Daily News, she went into retreat and was never seen in public again over one photograph. I have no issue with getting, you know, one day a nip and a tuck here and there. Okay. It's just the extreme plastic mm -hmm. surgery, you know, that where they take it to a, a different level that is mm -hmm. unnecessary. And, you know, certainly with 
when you're Mary Tyler Moore, she was an alcoholic, okay? And she had diabetes. You're not supposed to have surgery, really, unless it's necessary when those two things are involved in the mix. Certainly not elective surgery. It's one thing if you need, you know, your gallbladder out or it's emergency like that. But she kept on having these surgeries compounded with her diabetes, with the alcoholism. And if she hadn't left herself alone, I think she'd still be with us. I really believe that. I really believe Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. You know, my father was an alcoholic. And that is one of the issues that uh, that was the main issue in terms of the uh, uh, what's the uh, the constant uh, infighting between the two of us. Uh, he, and uh, he I, I could never uh, live up to anything that uh, was going to work for him. Mm. And uh, and when you are when and it took me only into adulthood to realize the power that alcohol had over my father. Mm. And, and I will say the same thing for Mary Tyler Moore. Um, it has such a grip on you that you're not thinking straight, you're making decisions that are not the right decision. Uh, regard, uh, let's forget about the plastic surgery. Um, a person with diabetes should not even be drinking like that. Right. Um, and that is a major issue to be dealing with as well. That's and it's a shame right. that she had those demons. No, it is. And it's it's very, very sad. And I, they're doing they're finally doing that documentary on her, which I think is going to be on HBO Max, which is now only called Max in May. And her husband, Dr. Robert Levine, uh, I didn't have anything to do with that one, but her husband is um, is producing that one. So that's exciting that they're finally doing that story because her story needs to be told in that way, too. Well, I want to ask you about this. I mean, because you have been, uh, have you lost count of how many documentaries you've been a part of? Because there's so many. And I will say this, if I see your name attached to it, um, and uh, kudos to you, I always feel that I'm going to get the truth. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel, uh, how much creative input are you allowed when it comes to uh, these documentaries that you are a part of? Well, well, the first Bewitched documentary that I did was in 1999 for the E! channel. It was called Bewitched, the Eacher Hollywood Story. And that was that was and remains the seventh highest Eacher Hollywood story in history, although I don't think they do them anymore. So they approached me about that. And also A&E's biography, they approached me with um, Elizabeth Montgomery of Bewitched Life at Reels I was the one that contacted Reels in just really an email. Um, and I said, I'd like to, would you guys be interested in doing a special on a documentary on Elizabeth Montgomery? And they said, well, we don't know. We don't know. And then they did like an autopsy on Elizabeth Montgomery, they, that show called Autopsy. And they said, well, if this does well, maybe we can, you know, we'll look into the, the full-blown documentary. Well, it, the autopsy did terrific. And they contacted me and said, Herbie, okay, we're ready to green light um, Elizabeth Montgomery biography, but we want to partner you with um, AMS Pictures. And AMS Pictures did the amazing, several different amazing documentaries, one of which was We Love Lucy. Yes. And I watched it. Oh, my gosh. And I loved it. Mm -hmm. It was so beautifully told, so beautifully done. Again, not controversial. I mean, not salacious, 
You know, I did not want the Bewitched documentary, the Elizabeth Montgomery documentary to be salacious. I didn't want to shun controversy, but I didn't want them to go over the top. And so when I saw what AMS did with We Love Lucy, I'm like, okay, these are the guys. And that's how it happened. So now, do you yeah. feel, I mean, as a result of those two, do you think we'll get more of these? Um, more about classic TV? These documentaries, because, I mean, um, I miss so much uh, A&E's biography. Yeah. I loved that series. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I wish that we had something like that uh, still on TV. And I well, think I certainly would like to do more. I mean, I'm open to that. I certainly want to do a documentary on Sean Connery because I have a new book that will be out in October about his life before the 40th anniversary of Never Say Never Again. Diana Rigg, I have a new biography on that. So absolutely, I would love to do more. Well, um, I'm going to put those thoughts out there. <laughs> yeah, I'm putting them out there. And uh, and I want you back here when your, uh, when your Christmas book comes out. Uh, because there's I, I, just so many uh, great uh, Christmas. And some of these shows, they come on. And uh, with all due respect, I, you know, I think I'm going to put it out there. I think that CNN with the specials that they've done, they somehow missed the mark because they're trying to crowd so much into those specials yeah. that we're missing the iconic uh, impact that they made on our lives growing up, um, at least with this special on Elizabeth Montgomery the other night, uh, we really got a sense of who she was. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think you uh, hit the target with this special. Oh, thank you. I'm sure everybody at AMS and Reels will be happy to hear that. I think I think we did too. It's, it's really, I'm very, very proud of it. And I have been wanting to do it for a very, very, very long time. And I wanted to make sure too that, you know, that nobody was offended. I'm not into that. So I got a text from Elizabeth Montgomery's son, who Bill Asher, who was on the show. And I also got a text from Chris York, uh, Dick York's son, who was on the show as well. And both of them loved it. And I went, okay, I did my job. And then I looked at the picture that I have here of Elizabeth. And I said, Okay, Elizabeth, I guess I did okay. I guess we all did okay on this one. So it was and, and, and I and I was Joyce Bolafont is a very dear close friend of mine. Uh, we worked uh, for two years on a project to get Helen Hayes home designated a, a literary landmark here. Uh, mm. and the day of the designation, I got COVID and I couldn't go mm. after two years of working on this project. So it was great to see Joyce there, you know. So uh but uh, so what are some of the other projects that you, I mean, are there other documentary projects that you're working on currently? Well, I'm, I'm also working on scripts. So there's, there's the possibility of turning the 12 Best Secrets of Christmas into a TV movie or a feature film. I have somebody, a director, wow. already interested in that. And he was impressed with, with the whole book. It's just a little book, but it's just mean. It's like a cross between... Uh, life's little instruction book and the Christmas box is how I look at it. So there's that. So I'm definitely, and I have two uh, TV movie scripts that I've completed about taking care of. It's essentially based on taking care of my parents, but there's much more to it than that. So I, you know what? I just want to move forward, 
do what I can, bring a little joy into the world. I know it sounds so Pollyanna or Pollyanna. Well, you do. So you already do that. So, <laughs> well, I, I just, I just feel blessed that I've been able to do, and I what I've already done, and and everything that happens after, you know, is extra. I mean, and I felt that way three years ago, but now that I've done this documentary, and now that. Um, I, I did everything I could possibly do with Bewitch or whatnot. It's all extra to me. And I say this all people, young actors or young writers or aspiring writers, whatever, they say to me all the time, they ask me all the time. So, you know, what what's the best thing I can do for my career? What is it that I could do that? And I like, you know what? The best thing you can do for your career is to live your life. Absolutely. Well, I, well, I want to ask you, I mean, do you feel that as far as the work that you do, uh, that you actually have a game plan in terms of what you do? Or do you think that it comes about because of the people that you've met and the circumstances that come about? I've never really had a game plan. I've just followed my heart. And it's not as though it's been easy. I mean, the Bewitched book was can't or uh, rejected a hundred times purchased, canceled by my publisher, purchased again, canceled by another publisher, and purchased again after 50 other rejections. I kept on going. I usually don't listen to negativity or rejection. I don't acknowledge it. I cry about it. I get angry. And then I move on, you know? And I, I always feel that if someone's re rejecting me or someone's hurting me or up to get me, I always consider the source. I always consider the source. And I try to figure out, okay. Well, I want to ask you, have you ever read the book, The Four Agreements? I've heard about it. Well, uh, get the book. It's called The Four Agreements. Everybody get it. Um, I lead a book group, and that's the book we're focused on right now. And one of the four agreements is that it's never about you. Mm. And uh, and I keep having to remind myself, Natasha is here. She's in our book group. I keep reminding myself of that. But I want to ask you, in because this is a business, regardless of what side you're on, uh, where no's are more prevalent than yeses. What is the biggest no that you've had to address in this business? And what got you around that no? <laughs> Um, that I was too cocky. <laughs> I know that, that sticks out in my mind a lot. You know, I mean, without giving away names, uh, who did that come from? Don't give any names. Uh, several people <laughs> over the years, but one in particular at NBC, they were um, my my boss, my supervisor at the time said, "You know, Herb, you're a little too cocky." You're just a little too cocky for your own good. And I'm like, okay. So then about two days no, later. No, said, you said, okay. So were you believing them or were you saying, you know, was there any I was hurt. I didn't understand it. So I really didn't. Because I was just being me. And I, when I've always thought I was a pretty kind person, pretty nice person, not a perfect person. But when I cared for my parents later on, I, be, I think I became a better person, but that, that came later. But when he said that, my supervisor at NBC, it kind of hurt. And I was like, what do, you, what do you mean? So two days later, as fate would have it, the Los Angeles Times came and did a story on pages. And they were looking for an angle. 
So I used to sing and dance. I took my cocky self. I used to <laughs> sing and dance for the audiences of, uh, you know, Wheel of Fortune, Tonight Show. I was like the warm-up, warm-up guy. And the LA Times reporter saw that, and he hit his angle. So the whole story really centered around pages, but I was at the middle of it. And the next day when it was published, everybody in the page world, oh, Herbie, wow, thank you, you were so wonderful. You changed. You changed. I'm like, dude, I haven't changed. Your perception <laughs> of me has changed. I've been the nice guy I've always been. But whatever it was, whatever your confidence is, whatever your persona is, there are going to be people who are intimidated by it. It's not you, like you say, in that fourth degree. It is them. That's why you do consider the source. But that doesn't mean that I don't get hurt by it. And I wouldn't be who I am if I didn't get hurt by those things. That's true. But I try to just keep going. Keep going. You have to keep going. So how many books have you written altogether? I think 13, 14, you know, which, and, it, and each time one is published, I still feel joy and pride and all of, what, all of that. When I saw the Bewitched book on the shelf for the first time in Barnes & Noble, I wigged out. It's, it's, I feel very privileged and, and fortunate and appreciative. I am thankful. I live in gratitude. And I believe, you know, as long as you do good work, the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, will send people to support you. Because I have not done anything I've done alone. I have had many friends through the years who have helped me with the gas and electric bill, car payments, food. I mean, I've not done it alone. I've not been independently wealthy. Just now, in these last few years, I have finally found financial stability. But it was tough. Not that. It's not it, easy. It was um, tough. Has, but as the books have gone on... Has You're making on? me cry, Richard. No. It, well, call me the Barbara Walters of Richard's <laughs> Resolvers. If you were a tree, what would you... <laughs> A pear tree because of Erie Street. They a pear tree, of course. Uh, if um, has it gotten easier for you, or it, uh, does is each uh, book a new entity into itself? Writing the uh, the books have become easier because um, it's uh, the internet and the access to all this information. And the book is never completed. Today, you write a book; it's never done. Because there's always something else you want to add because there's so much information out there. Um, so that has, the process of writing it has gotten easier. The process of selling it is still tough because the, the world of publishing is not what it used to be. There's only like, you know, five houses now. They've all eaten each other up. And you could have the best idea in the world and the perfect marketing plan. But if you don't have the editor at that house who believes in the book as much as you do, it don't matter. They could be, and they could be having a bad hair day, or they might have had a bad cup of coffee, and your proposal came across their desk, and nah, nah, because they're having a bad day. So it's a very, very, it's not a very objective industry, and it should be, but it's not. People do what they want to do based on their feelings, unfortunately, overall. I want to ask you what your process is like, uh, and is it 
pretty much the same with each book or does it evolve? I mean, obviously you learn as you go along and you're not the same person now as you were when you started with your first book. Uh, what has changed within yourself in terms of how you approach your subjects? Well, before I, I did the Sean Connery and the Diana Rigg book, really, I was done. I didn't want to do any more books. And um, an agent, wonderful agent named Lee Sobel, contacted me. And he said, I want to, you know, I'd like you to write a couple books. I was like, no, I'm done. You know, I just, I want to watch The Bionic Woman and that's it. You know, <laughs> put it in the DVDs, the Blu-rays, whatever, and let's go. But he convinced me to do more. And he wanted to bring me out of just the TV thing. He wanted to get me into movies. And that's when we decided Sean Connery. And that's when, because Sean Connery had just died and Diana Rigg had just died. And so he inspired me. And it was during the pandemic too, which was, you know, depressing for everybody. So he inspired me and I wrote those books. I, I wrote proposals for those books and we sold those books within three weeks plus another one. I sold three books in three weeks. Wow. It was like a magical, magical thing. Um, so, but there's other ideas that I've had that we've tried to sell that nobody wants. And I'm like, why? You know, the way I feel is any book about any TV show or any movie or any celebrity that's been in the American psyche or the pop culture psyche for even just five years, built in market built-in market automatically. It just has to be tapped. And that's how I see it, you know. And of course, you have to have talent, a certain amount of talent to write it. And you have to talk to the right people, which I try to do. But um, yeah, it's, it's still frustrating selling. It's still frustrating because you don't sell everything you, you work on. Uh, and then you sell things you didn't think you would. Well, I want to say thank you for what you have done because we're all, uh, everybody, uh, there's uh, go to Amazon, uh, look Herbie up and get these books. I mean, you are the best. You are truly oh. the best at what you do. And uh, I've been wanting to have you on this show for so long. And when I reached out and you said yes, um, I felt like it was Christmas morning. So oh. uh, now I truly mean it. I really do mean that. I'm a huge fan of your work. Uh, oh. So uh, it means a lot to me that you're here today. Thank Don't you. go anywhere for a moment. Um, I'm going to say my closing remarks, and then I'm going to give you the last word today. It could be about anything that we spoke about today that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you want to leave everyone with today. Uh, I want to thank everyone for being here. Uh, I've, I, I could do another hour with you, Herbie, and I hope that you'll come back. Uh, when, you. uh, yes. And uh, this book, I have to tell you, uh, Peggy Pope was a dear friend of mine, and you know which episode she was in. Um, and do you, do you recall? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to share a funny story with everybody. Yeah, you got a minute or two? So Peggy Pope uh, in the movie Nine to Five, she's the one who's always drinking out of the flask going, at a girl, at a girl. And she was a very dear friend of mine. So when her book came out, she called me up and she asked me if I would uh, interview her. And so I did a blog on her. And then I got the opportunity to interview her at Barnes and Noble. And uh, I had read the book and she's in the episode where 
uh, Tabitha turns her best friend into a puppy. And she's uh, the mother who is always trying to let her son live out his aggressions, live mm. out whoever he wants to be. Funny, fun, ep- funny episode. I love Peggy Pope so much. Well, I realize now looking back that this was probably the beginning of slight dementia for Peggy mm. because she couldn't remember anything from the book. So I would sit down, I would ask her a question and she'd say, I would say, now let's talk about you on Bewitched. She said, I was on Bewitched. Oh. And, but the way that she delivered it, everyone thought that she was being funny. Mm. And so the audience was in stitches and it, the whole evening was one of the best evenings I've ever spent on stage. She thought it was hysterical. Afterwards, she remembered everything. <laughs> I don't know if she was pulling my leg or not, but we had the best time. And, uh, you know, but you, have, I mean. Well, you know, my mom had Alzheimer's and yeah. dementia, and I dealt with that. And, and what you, and what I learned and what I tell people who are dealing with that or family members is if they say black is black, then, or if they say black is white, then, then black is white. You don't argue with it. And I'll share one last thing. When I went to interview uh, Betsy Palmer, uh, I've been working on. She didn't do Bewitched, right? Uh, What was that? She didn't do Bewitched, right? No, she didn't do Bewitched. But when I went to interview her, I've been working on this Hello Dolly book for years. And so her daughter you know, called me up and said, you know, my mom did Dolly and she had done Dolly, you know, in stock and everything. So I set up an interview for Dolly, uh, uh, for Betsy Bomber. And uh, I was told uh, by a mutual friend that she had trouble remembering things. And so the morning of the interview, I'm on my way. Melissa, her daughter had set up the interview. And when I called Betsy, she knew nothing about the interview. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, we can cancel, we can, no, no, if you were planning on coming, I want you to come. And I got there and, uh, she said, you know, I want you to know my brain is crap. I don't remember anything. And I said, well, I've got my tape recorder. We're going to sit down. We're going to do the interview. If you remember anything great. And if not, we had a great day. And she said, I like that. And I sat down, I asked her the first question and everything flooded out of her. Like she remembered everything. And then her daughter showed up, her daughter forgot to tell her. And so it wasn't that she had forgotten. She didn't even know I was coming. So, so, but anyway, I loved her, loved her, loved her. Um, And again, everybody, my closing remarks to you, as I say with every show, uh, go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Yeah. Pick up the phone, call someone that you haven't spoken to in a long time and let them know how they've made a difference in your life. Then what I want you to do is I want you to go to amazon.com. You've got 14 books to choose from. <laughs> Order two, keep one for yourself and send one to your best friend and let them and write an inscription in about how much they mean to you and let them know that they make a difference in your life. I have a dear friend. He says, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different size boats. I don't care what size boat you're on as long as you have a skipper by your side. And with that note, I'm going to leave the screen. Herbie, it's all yours and you're welcome back here anytime. Keep up the great work. I love you. And thanks for being here today. Thank you. God bless you, Richard. Thank you. Um, I think my message is that 
All of those who create in any way on TV, film, the stage, music, utilize the talents that you've been given for the higher good of all concerned. Stop with the violence, stop with the vulgarity. Tell the story with likability and charm. Yes, you want an edge, but tell it with class and dignity and make that message be one of unity somehow and respect for all.